You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's open our Bibles together and turn this afternoon to the Old Testament, to the book of 1 Kings. Our scripture reading as well as our text is the same. It comes from 1 Kings 14, beginning at verse 21, to chapter 15, verse 24. And there the word of our God reads as follows, Rehoboam, son of Solomon, was king in Judah. He was 41 years old when he became king. And he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel in which to put his name. His mother's name was Naamah. She was an Ammonite. Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. By the sins they committed, they stirred up his jealous anger more than their fathers had done. They also set up for themselves high places, sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. There were even male shrine prostitutes in the land. The people engaged in all the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem. He carried off the treasures of the temple of the Lord and the treasures of the royal palace. He took everything, including all the gold shields Solomon had made. So King Rehoboam made bronze shields to replace them and assigned them to the commanders of the guard on duty at the entrance to the royal palace. Whenever the king went to the Lord's temple, the guards bore the shields, and afterward they returned them to the guardroom. As for the other events of Rehoboam's reign and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? There was continual warfare between Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and Rehoboam rested with his fathers and was buried with them in the city of David. His mother's name was Naamah. She was an Ammonite. And Abijah, his son, succeeded him as king. In the 18th year of the reign of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, Abijah became king of Judah, and he reigned in Jerusalem three years. His mother's name was Maacah, daughter of Abishalom. He committed all the sins his father had done before him. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord, his God, as the heart of David, his forefather, had been. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord, his God, gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son to succeed him and by making Jerusalem strong. For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. There was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam throughout Abijah's lifetime. And as for the other events of Abijah's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah. There was a war between Abijah and Jeroboam, and Abijah rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And Asa, his son, succeeded him as king. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa became king of Judah, and he reigned in Jerusalem 41 years. His grandmother's name was Maacah, daughter of Abishalom. Asa did what was right, in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. He expelled the male shrine prostitutes from the land and got rid of all the idols his fathers had made. He even deposed his grandmother Maacah from her position as queen mother. 
because she had made a repulsive Asherah pole. Asa cut the pole down and burned it in the Kidron Valley. Although he did not remove the high places, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. He brought into the temple of the Lord the silver and the gold and the articles that he and his father had dedicated. There was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, throughout their reigns. Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and fortified Ramah to prevent anyone from leaving or entering the territory of Asa, king of Judah. Asa then took all the silver and gold that was left in the treasuries of the Lord's temple and of his own palace. He entrusted it to his officials and sent them to Ben-Hadad, son of Tabarimon, the son of Hezion, the king of Aram, who was ruling in Damascus. Let there be a treaty between me and you, he said, as there was between my father and your father. See, I am sending you a gift of silver and gold. Now break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so he will withdraw from me. Benadad agreed with King Asa and sent the commanders of his forces against the towns of Israel. He conquered Ijon, Dan, Abel, Beth Ma'akah, and all Kinnereth, in addition to Naphtali. When Baasha heard this, he stopped building Ramah and withdrew from Tirzah. Then King Asa issued an order to all Judah. No one was exempt, and they carried away from Ramah the stones and timber Baasha had been using there. With them, King Asa built up Geba in Benjamin and also Mizpah. And as for all the other events in Asa's reign, all his achievements, all he did, and the cities he built, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? In his old age, however, his feet became diseased. Then Asa rested with his fathers and was buried with them in the city of his father David. And Jehoshaphat, his son, succeeded him as king. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the royals have come and the royals have gone. For most of last week, the news in Canada was dominated by the visit of Prince William and his new wife, Kate. In rather short order, they managed to visit Ottawa, Quebec, PEI, the North Country, Slave Lake, and also Alberta. And in the process, they attended a large number of public events, gave numerous speeches, shook countless hands, and won many hearts. It would appear that the royalty is alive and well in Canada, and that the visit of the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge has gone a long way to revive its image. Only the same can not be said of the monarchy here in the book of Kings. It's not doing so well. It's in decline. And so then perhaps you might ask the question, why bother to deal with it? Why preach about this part of Holy Scripture at all? And indeed, why even bother to speak about these long-buried characters? Are they not best left as dead, discarded, and decadent men? Well, beloved, I would say to you, the answer to those questions lies for a good deal in how you view the Bible. If you merely view the Bible as a history book, then I suppose you can pick and choose your way through it 
and you can choose both your likes and dislikes. But if you believe the Bible is the living Word of God, and that all of it is profitable, as the Apostle Paul writes, then you'll need to take a different approach. And indeed, then you will need to go out from the starting point that every part of it has significance, has something to tell us, and is, in one way or another, important. Yes, and also that's the perspective that I have chosen to take this afternoon. I do not believe that what we have here in 1 Kings is simply minor, incidental, optional tidbits of information. Now, what we have here is God speaking to us through ancient men with the intent that we might learn some modern lessons. In other words, the past still speaks today. It should be our teacher yet. We need to keep learning from these even sometimes obscure stories in the Old Testament scriptures. But learning what? Well, let's interact with 1 Kings 14 and 15, not necessarily touching on every single aspect that's revealed there, but in any case, our theme is very simply, we three kings. And I know you want to fill in the rest of that particular line, and you may do so, but these are not the kings of Orient are. First of all, there is King Rehoboam, and we're going to see much evil. Abijah, some grace, Asa, high hopes. Well, beloved, this afternoon we turn our attention, first of all, to the reign of King Rehoboam. What shall one say about Rehoboam? Well, there are really, I think, three things that come to mind with respect to him. And the first is this, never underestimate the power and influence of your mother. I think that tends to be something that we try to do. You know, when we're young and foolish, we come across as if we are our own persons. And in the process, we will sometimes jump up and down, insisting that a certain idea, position, or opinion didn't come from our parents at all, but that we dreamed it up all by ourselves. And young people will even go out of their way to stress that they're not reliant on anyone, but that they are independent and original thinkers. Interestingly, it's when they get older, and some would say wiser, that they start to admit that perhaps, just perhaps, a little bit, there may have been some parental influence in their life after all. Now, I am not sure as to how insistent Rehoboam was about his particular independence. However, our text would have us believe that there was very little of that. Notice, his father is mentioned once in verse 21, Rehoboam, son of Solomon. Someone else is mentioned twice. Twice, we are told, his mother's name was Naamah, and she was 
an Ammonite. And in addition, notice, we're told this at the beginning of his reign and at the end of his reign. And why this repetition? Well, to stress that Rehoboam's mother represents the two bookends of his reign. Her influence is there at the beginning, and her influence is there at the end. Now, in and of itself, that might not be a bad thing. Often in life, one could wish that mothers would have more influence, would be listened to a lot better by their children, and would have a greater impact as a result on the lives and the behaviors of their children. Only I am sure that that is not something wished in this case. For twice it also says she was an Ammonite. Anywhere else, such a statement wouldn't raise much in terms of eyebrows. No one blinks if you say, well, my mother was Dutch or is Dutch, or my mother is Canadian, or my mother is Chinese or Korean. But in the context of the Bible and of Israel, it was a rather startling thing to hear it said, she, my mother, is an Ammonite. For everybody knows that Ammonites hate Jews. That Ammonites represent the enemy. That Ammonites are to be feared and distrusted and despised. So what do we have here in our text? We have an Israelite king who's controlled by the enemy. Rehoboam is not his own man at all. You know, when, when Jeroboam, the other person mentioned in this part of Scripture, the other king in Israel at that time, when, when Jeroboam originally confronted Rehoboam about maybe he should think about a different leadership style when, when he succeeded Solomon, his father, then Rehoboam had to think about it and he had to get advice from, you know, the old fellas and the young fellas, and he followed the advice of the young fellas with disastrous consequences. And so that seems to have been a bit of a norm. He's always consulting. And he's especially consulting his mother, who is no friend of Israel or of the people of God. So the first thing you get in our text is that it highlights illicit, improper, motherly influence. The second thing it highlights here is rapid decline. The verses 22 to 24 represent a short, sad, sordid tale of idolatry and immorality. Once he's king, Rehoboam issues the orders, and in no time at all, every high hill in Judah, every big spreading tree is crowned with a shrine and filled with sacred stones and Asherah poles. And it says, even with male shrine prostitutes. You see, in very short order, the entire religious fabric of Judah is overhauled. Only it's not for good, but for much evil. 
Verse 22 states, Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. By their sins they stirred up his jealous anger more than their fathers had done. Maybe Rehoboam figured that God wouldn't notice. But he's utterly wrong in that. The eyes of the Lord see everything and everyone. And maybe he figured the Lord wouldn't really mind after all, but again, he misses the boat. Because you can note from our text that his sins ignite a fire under God, a fire of of jealous anger. And the result? Read verse 24 of the second part. The people engaged in all the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. Who were those nations? They were all those nations influenced by the Ammonites and the Moabites. You see, Naamah has managed to turn back the clock. She, with the cooperation of her son Rehoboam, has worked a religious comeback. And all the old detestable stuff, all the despicable things, even child sacrifice that God caused Israel to get rid of, are back. And living among his very own covenant people. Talk about a setback and a disaster. And that in turn brings us to the third thing to notice in our text with respect to Rehoboam, and that is that the show must go on. For what does God do in the face of such rampant disobedience? He picks an unlikely rod of discipline called Shishak, king of Egypt. You may notice he does that more often. God likes unlikely rods of discipline. And Shishak attacks Jerusalem, conquers it, carries off all the treasures in the temple and in the palace. He took everything, it says. He cleaned house. Everything of value is carted off to Egypt. It used to be said in the days of the Exodus that the Israelites plundered the Egyptians. But now the Egyptians are plundering the Israelites. And so what does Rehoboam do in light of this devastating blow? Does he see the light? Does he repent? Does he return to the Lord? Nothing doing. Notice he ignores God's judgment completely and he decides to lick his wounds and the icing on the cake is the fact that he has those gold and silver shields replaced with bronze ones and he carries on as if nothing has happened. After all, the show must go on. Oh, the deceitfulness and the stubbornness of sin. And you know, surely this, this kind of warns us today. 
For let's face it, that when we, when we read about all this idolatry and immorality and about turning against the Lord and refusing to repent, we have this tendency to assume that this may happen to them, but it would never, ever happen to us. And indeed, we're prone to think of Rehoboam, man, how dense can you be? But what we need to realize, and I think that's why it's there, that we are not by nature one whit better. We're being told here, never underestimate the power of sin and evil, also not in your own life. But then, beloved, if there is Rehoboam, there is also Abijah, who in some translations is called Abijam. And we can be short about him because our text is short. He reigns for a mere three years. Yes, and about him as well, you can say, if you want, there are three things that stand out. The first thing is that he is a chip off the old block. Verse 3 states, he committed all the sins his father had done before him. So the idolatry and the immorality merely continues. Evil father, evil son. That's the rhyme. And the lesson is obvious again. It's not easy to break the chain of sin, especially if they have wrapped themselves around you and your family. Once it has you in its grip, it will not let you go. Indeed, only God can break it and free you from it. And the second thing about Abijah's reign is that it's full of of war and blood and gore. Indeed, verse 6 tells us that his whole life was filled with war. There was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam throughout Abijah's lifetime. Verse 7 even repeats it. There was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. And you know, whenever Scripture repeats something, you and I, we need to stand up and take notice because that means there's something emphatic being said there. And what's emphatically being said here is that things were bad. Really, really bad and ugly. You know, sometimes that makes people think. It may cause them to review, reflect, and even reassess. You know how it is. It are not the good times that make us wake up and force us to take stock. Good times are often Lazy times. Good times are often careless times. Good times are often thoughtless times. No one does much of anything when everything is going their way. But hard times are different. Sometimes hard times hit us over the head like a two-by-four. And they wake us up. Only notice, not Abijah. He reigns briefly, and he dies quickly. 
He begins his reign in sin and he ends his reign in sin. His time on the throne of Judah is short and it is sour. At least that's the case on the surface. But now have a peek underneath. What do you see? You see a third thing about Abijah's reign, and that is that there is grace, hidden grace, in this reign of Abijah. Verse 4 says, Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising a son to succeed him and by making Jerusalem strong. Here, notice, the nation of Israel is going to pot. But at the same time, we're reminded that God is not going to let it disintegrate altogether. And that for David's sake, he decides to intervene. That for David's sake, he decides to make a lamp. That for David's sake, he decides to give Abijah a son who will break the mold of sin and rebellion. Israel, Judah may forget him. But he does not forget them and the covenant that he has made. Especially with David. The Lord had promised him an eternal throne, an eternal house, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal son. You can read all about it in 2 Samuel 7. Yes, and now in the dark days of Rehoboam and Abijah, our God remembers his covenant with David. He makes a new beginning. He breaks through the darkness. Our God lights a lamp. He sends Asa. Well, what shall we say about Asa? Again, if you want, three things. First, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father, David, had done. You know, Asa's father is actually Abijah, right? But it says here that really his father was David, his spiritual father. You know, that's the Bible's way of saying, we're just going to forget about the last guy. And we're going to jump to the guy before him who was really faithful and obedient. If you're not faithful in the eyes of God, you don't count. God skips over you. And so, it stresses here, that Asa did what was right in the eyes of his grandfather. And you know, that had repercussions for his grandmother. By the way, she's mentioned in verse 13. Her name is Ma'akah. She's called Queen Mother, although literally the Hebrew word is Gibarah, which, interestingly enough, means Big Mama. Or big lady. 
Now, most likely the bigness doesn't refer to her size or to her weight, but it refers to her power and her influence. In short, this is one woman you don't want to mess with. But Asa did. God gave him the strength to send his grandmother into retirement. Sorry, Grandma, but you got to go. And go she does. But not just her. Notice also her idolatry. Asa got rid of her and her detestable Asherah pole. He burned it, it says, in the Kidron Valley. And he followed it by getting rid of a lot of other stuff, other idolatrous stuff as well. And in addition, he restores the temple to its former glory and the bronze shields are replaced with shields of silver and gold. He shows himself to be a reformer king. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But you know, if that was the first thing, there's the second thing. He defended his realm. Suddenly, Baasha, king of Israel, is mentioned for the first time here in the book of Kings. And what are his intentions? Well, he wants to destabilize Asa's reign and undermine his realm. And so what does he do? He decides he's going to fortify Ramah, which is about five miles north of Jerusalem. And right away, Asa sees the threat and the danger in all of that. And how does he act? Well, he does what most kings in those days tended to do. He makes alliances. He approaches Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, to break his treaty with Baasha and to attack Baasha's kingdom. And Ben-Hadad does so. He does so because of a bribe. You'll notice verse 19 of the Niv says it's a gift. Folks, it's not a gift. Asa takes the silver and the gold out of the temple and out of the palace in Jerusalem and he sends it north to Syria. That's a bribe. And the original word actually says it's a very odious bribe, not a gift at all. But in any case, Asa manages to outflank Baasha and he makes him withdraw from Ramah. And the danger to his realm is over. And that brings us to a third thing. The end does not justify the means. You know, in one king's little or nothing of a critical nature is said about Asa's tactics. But if you read carefully between the lines, you can send some things amiss. And if you read the parallel account in two chronicles, you can see it surely, obviously. This aim to rescue Judah is good. But this turning to a foreign king for rescue is not good. And using a sordid bribe 
to accompany it is certainly not good. You see, the end is good, but the means are rotten. So what does all of this prove? Well, surely it proves that it's good when God sends a reformer king to his people, but he alone isn't enough. He's not perfect. He's not a king according to the standard of Psalm 72. And indeed, you can say, beloved, what all these stories of the three kings and more shout out is this one huge message. We need a better king. We need a sinless king. We need a more powerful king. We need an eternal king. Only such a king can solve our problems once and for all. Wishful thinking, the stuff of pipe dreams? Not at all. For in the fullness of time, God did send us a perfect, powerful, and perpetual king. And his name is Jesus. He alone is the king who has power over all things, as we heard this morning. He alone is the king who gives us everything that is good. And so if you ask, what are these stories about all these ancient kings in Judah and Israel good for? They're good at least for this. They remind us every day that we should rejoice. For we have received a great and glorious king in Jesus who lives and reigns today and who's coming back soon. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.